This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers farmers and your government. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello. Good to have you along. Michelle Stanley's my name and I'll be with you for the next half hour on Countrywide. On the program is the Philippines set to take a bite out of Australia's mango market. It's always been pretty clear that Australian mangoes from Australian farmers are considered the best quality in the world. The Australian consumer sees it that way. So I don't, I, I, I can't really see this um causing any issues. Maybe not. Are you a fan of mung beans? If not, maybe you should be. Our Asian customers use them mainly into confectionery and dessert markets and soups where our Indian uh, customers will make them into uh, mung dal where they'll take the skin off and split them and make mung dal out of them. And you'll meet one of this year's Farmer of the Year Award recipients. Then we had to look at our own business and how we would rebuild. Um, so the loss of um, stock, um, sheep, uh, the loss of um, crops in particular, which we were relying on for cash flow coming into the business. Plenty more coming up on Countrywide. Stick around. First, though, it's been a year since varroa mite was detected in Australia. It was found in sentinel hives at the port of Newcastle last June. And 12 months on, the fight to eradicate the world's most devastating honeybee pest is far from over. In the last year, 25,000 hives in New South Wales have been euthanised across nearly 1 million hectares of red zone. And the number of infested hives has now jumped to 167. The Consultative Committee on Emergency Plant Pests is close to agreeing on a three-year response strategy to eradicate varomite in New South Wales by June 2026. Kim Honan is speaking here to the Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO, Danny LaFerve. Yeah, look, it's a, a grim milestone. I was never hoping to ever have to say the words that uh, we'd be celebrating one year into a varroa incursion in Australia, but uh, here we are. And uh, yes, it has been tumultuous for the whole industry and cost a lot of beekeepers a lot of money just in restrictions and plot and, and just in their efforts to try and eradicate the mites. And do we know just how much money it has cost beekeepers? We're still working through that process. So there's a a process in place of approvals with Consultative Committee and Emergency Plant Pests and a National Management Group. We are getting very close to agreement on a three-year response plan, which has an associated budget. Uh, But even that budget is continuously built in, so it's not an actual cost. Uh, So at this stage, we're not very clear on what the actual cost to to industry uh, will be, uh, except to say that we've worked hard to... Uh, Minimise those costs. We've had the Vermont recategorised, which has allowed for increased uh, cost sharing from the government's perspective uh, and, and a small decrease from industry. And you're pretty confident that uh, this exotic disease can still be eradicated from New South Wales? Yeah, look, I think New South Wales DPI have got this eradication 
program into a position that no other country in the world has ever been able to do with Roa. I'm very confident we have it contained. I'm very confident it can be eradicated. But we need a lot of things to go right. So we need beekeepers to do the right thing. We need everyone to follow the rules that are in place. And we need you know, a little bit of luck as well to make sure that um, you know, we can keep it contained in Newcastle. And then it will just be a case of slowly eradicating it, moving back into the centre of those red circles. So it's certainly achievable, but it's a huge task ahead. Danny Lefebvre from Arbeck. Well, neither industry or government have revealed the actual cost of the varroa response to date. One of the largest honey producers on the East Coast says it's cost his business close to $1 million. Steve Fuller is a beekeeper near Grafton. Look, at the moment, we've lost uh, close to about 400 hives, uh, better. A little over 150 have been euthanised in the first round, but then through surveillance methods, not being able to manage them properly, not being able to move them when we need to, uh, all this sort of stuff means that we're losing hives. We lose about 20% of our hives through uh, mismanagement now. Mm. So we're talking about in the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars? Uh, If you um, would say, yeah, look, I'd I'd be very close to a million dollars being conservative. And what reimbursement have you received from the government? Uh, initially, any hives that were euthanised in the red zone, we were reimbursed, and um, we appreciate that. We'll also reimburse for honey losses in the purple, but um, it really never went on to... It's just a one round. It never went on for the years that we need to cover because uh, our business personally is a large business. Um, we employ up to 20 people here on the north coast, and that ultimately on flows to our farms that we pollinate to could be hundreds of people that have been affected. So what percentage of that $1 million loss or cost do you think you would have received back from the government? I would say about 25%. Do you know how much it's cost other beekeepers in New South Wales? Yes, I, there's a few beekeepers around New South Wales that aren't even allowed to use their extracting sheds. Um, there's some that have lost their complete businesses. Uh, put, trying to put a value on that, I can't, but there is some people that have really um, gone right out of the beekeeping game. There's some people that are still trying to hang on. Steve Fuller is a beekeeper from Grafton in northern New South Wales. Two of Western Australia's key farm lobby groups say a string of state and federal government legislation with implications for the agricultural sector has led to an increase in membership inquiries. WA Farmers says in the last couple of months, membership numbers have increased by around 40. Mark Fowler is the president of the WA Farmers Grains section. He says farmers are feeling somewhat under siege by government at the moment, and that's driving a spike in membership. We've got the ban on live export. We've got the new cultural heritage laws, new gun laws, unfair biosecurity levies coming on and we have like quasi-government regulation like the ICC scheme requirements and all of those things are I think people are realising that on the back of that with so many forms of intervention in the way that we that we farm we've seen people look to us in the last last few months and seen something of a surge in memberships which has been really pleasing but we really need to keep that momentum going because this is not the end of it there's there's a whole lot of other stuff in the pipeline where farmers need to be united and to have a strong voice and a united voice and a well-resourced voice so that we can be heard by government. As you said, there's a whole list of 
pieces of legislation that are around at the moment, and you listed a few, the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, the marine parks, the phase-out of the live export trade for sheep by sea. You haven't been able to, or lobby groups haven't been able to cut through to government to really influence that legislation. So what is an increase in membership going to do as far as cutting through? What difference is it going to make? Well, some of this stuff happened a fair while ago. Um, The Aboriginal cultural heritage laws were enacted in 2021. They don't commence until July. But that's just, I think that's really woken people up, that government can just so totally disregard our input, our feedback. And we farmers are, are shrinking in number because farms get bigger. When one farm buys another farm, two votes becomes one vote. We've seen modification of our electoral laws, which reduces the weight of regional votes. And we've seen quite a lurch to the, to the left with we're away from conservatives at both levels of government. So our representation has shrunk considerably. We have also have a city-based population that is increasingly interested in the way in which we farm. However, they're often misled by social media influencers, activists, and, and we farmers are soft targets. We're out of sight, out of mind. It's so easy for, for us to be deprioritised uh, when we don't carry that many votes. So we feel it's, it's, it's more important than it's ever been that farmers are a member of a farm organisation so they can speak loudly so the government can hear, um, so that the other industries can hear. Another factor that's quite relevant at the moment is that other industries, the way in which they speak, and we have the mining industry, for example, um, are very good at articulating a clear message. The louder their message is, our message can get lost because we haven't got that strength of voice and we don't have the resources to cut through to the, the city voters which make the difference. Now, greater membership is really important for two reasons. Firstly, it increases the credibility and the power of our advocacy. If the more farmers we represent and the greater percentage of farmers that we represent, the stronger that message is. So it's really important for legitimacy and credibility. Secondly, it's also about resourcing. If we want to cut through to the mainstream media and, and city voters and, and, and have our message heard, we need money for advertising, we need money for professional third-party reports, quality staff, which we've, sorry, we've got quality staff, but more and more staff for that purpose. So it's, it's, it's really important that we are able to speak as loudly and as, and, and as, as unified fashion as we can to have that message heard. And I will point out that we've obviously had a number of farm advocacy organisations operating in this space over the course of history. LGA Farmers, PGA, the West Australian Grains Group, we're actually working really well together, have, have been for, for quite some time actually. And even though we're not a single body, when we speak together, and we have been a lot, that has power because you can infer from that that we represent the full spectrum of opinion. So what are the numbers saying? What can you tell us about? You're saying there's a spike in numbers. What are they? We've had around 30 to 40 new members join just recently, which which is fairly significant. We see in, in, in agriculture that the number of farms are shrinking um, and, that, and that's happening. That's been a steady process over a period of years. So there's less people to be members. And we've actually seen our membership go up by 30 to 40 members and just, just recently. And we would hope that continues. There's the last six months to a year, we've seen that steadily increase. So that's really pleasing. They don't sound probably like massive numbers, but when you think about 
I think we've got around a thousand members. We represent about a third of, of grain growers. As the grains president, I can only speak for, for grains, but if we could represent, or if the SFOs together could represent a more significant portion of, of, of that grower base, then it's much more compelling when we speak. When was the last time you had a spike in those numbers, sort of 30, 40 members in the last couple of months? Oh, I was talking to another grower about it last night. And he said he can't remember this kind of swell of interest. And this is a guy that's just signed up, um, having been a member many years ago. He said he can't remember the mid-90s is what he said. Now, that predates my involvement in this space. But, yeah, no, he said he's not with this for some time. Mark Fowler is the president of WA Farmers Grain Section. He was speaking with Belinda Varaschetti. The Philippines are set to start exporting mangoes to Australia for the first time. But details are thin on just how much will arrive in the coming weeks. In a statement from the Philippine Embassy in Canberra, it said protocols to export mangoes to Australia had been in place since 2016, but the industry was now ready to start exports during Australia's winter months. Brett Kelly from the Australian Mango Industry Association says he has no problems with Filipino mangoes coming in but says he doesn't have many details about the first shipments. I haven't heard much about it, but um, I believe they gained access um, a couple of years ago and they are going to be bringing some in, but um, there there doesn't seem to be too much um, uh, publicity about it. Mm. So do you have a sense on just how much could be arriving from this nation? No, I I don't. I, I wouldn't think there'll be... Um, a huge amount from history. You know, it, it's it's always been pretty clear that Australian mangoes from Australian farmers are considered the best quality in the world. The Australian consumer sees it that way. So I don't, I, I, I can't really see this um, causing any issues at all in terms of interfering with our, our own trade. Especially if they come in June and, and July, that's not really clashing with uh, Australian fresh mangoes. Do you do you have any thoughts on the on the rise of imports though? Uh, look, you I mean obviously you'd like to see import and export being a two way street, and if uh, negotiations are done correctly, it should be done on the basis obviously of of always getting a foot in the door for our Australian farmers uh, as a priority. But you know, again. After many, many years being involved, as I mentioned before, any any product that's produced on farm out of Australia or New Zealand is just already got an edge around the world in terms of quality. So I think we always have that advantage. We, we've just got to get smarter and better at managing that front-end relationship. Do you have any biosecurity concerns? Um, I don't think so. I'm sure, you know, the government has gone through that fairly clearly. Um, obviously, I, I can't imagine they would be allowing anything to come in without the highest of standards. So I don't think that's going to be an issue at all. Brett Kelly is the Chief Executive of the Australian Mango Industry Association. He was speaking with Matt Bran. In a statement from the Philippine Ambassador to Australia, Helen De La Vega, she said, for many years Australians have been enjoying dried mangoes from the Philippines, which has become a popular healthy snack in Australia. And now it's time for Aussies to enjoy our much-beloved fruit. 
The ambassador said the Philippines produce mangoes all year round, whereas Australia normally produces for a certain few months starting in September. She said the winter season is the best time to make these Philippine mangoes available in the market to ensure Filipinos and Australians alike are able to enjoy the national fruit of the Philippines all year round. According to Hort Innovation, Australia imported 726 tonnes of fresh mangoes last year. The biggest supplier was Thailand, followed by India, Mexico, Brazil, then Pakistan. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Michelle Stanley with you on Countrywide. Good to have you along. Now I want you to meet Tess and Andrew Herbert. They've weathered everything from drought to the devastating Yugara flood, which killed two people last year in central west New South Wales. And aside from their really strong support networks in the town, their friends, neighbours and suppliers, they credit their resilience to the diversification of their operations. They run a feedlot. They breed cattle, run sheep and grow crops. And the couple have been recognised as the winners of the 2023 Farmer of the Year Awards. Andrew Herbert says their farm, Gundamain, has been in the family for six generations. In the mid-60s, it was a family partnership and my, my, my parents sort of, uh, there were three, three brothers and a sister and they dissolved the partnership so they all went their different ways. And then they were um, trying to look for a name and they end up coming up with a name, um, Gundamain, which means um, small hut by a stream. The Mandajiri Creek, so that's the stream they're, they're working on. So, um, and Yugawa sort of comes from um, washing the sand from the hills. So that's probably pretty appropriate for what's happened the last six months. Through the various shocks and supply chain disruptions, the Herberts have expanded and diversified their interests in a gamble that's paid off. Long-term sustainability over short-term profits. Yeah, we run um, 650, 700 Angus breeders, which we're sort of um, working through and we're trying to prove that all the time. But um, And those those sort of cattle come back into the yard when we, when the, as weaners or whatever, we background those cattle first and they come back into the feed yard. Also, we run five or 6,000 um, first costs in Merino use so, um, as well and um, we run, well, I think we put in about 4,500 acres of crop. We tend to have extreme drought years and we tend to have extreme wet years. We've seen to the last six or seven years. And I think the only way we, we do that, we, we, we personally, we just put a lot of fight away. We do the simple things right, put a lot of fight away in those really good years. And and if you've got paddocks that are producing fodder, make sure you cut them for hail, cut them for silage, and make sure we put that feed away for those other drought years. More or less, we're, we're trying to keep ground cover year-round. And we're trying to keep feed in the paddock year round at the same time, so we're sort of working on that balance. But but some of those uh, like some of those pastures be winter dominant and some be summer dominant. So the summer ones will come up when the winter ones don't. And also we're trying to do it in a way where we can control weeds better as well. Tess Herbert has been called an inspiration with her decades of industry experience after starting out as a school teacher in Forbes. I think as an industry, agriculture needs to be more comfortable with the fact that we will be dealing with extremes in climate events so long droughts longer harder droughts and um, and here high rainfall for the last two years and then heading to uh, a dry period again 
us and there's the potential for what we do here to play out in in other for other farmers as well um what we we have made the decision to do here works really well for us so to have an intensive facility means that essentially we're drought proofing in a way uh, we're also able to deal with the shocks of climatic events or supply chain extremes so any of those we can deal with because we've got a consistent cash flow um, it's what we relied on heavily during drought and during the flood event when Ugarra was smashed by the flash flood last year the Herberts were hit hard, losing their best ever canola crop. They say to fully recover from the damage could still take years. The trauma of that event was that it affected our town, but um, once we, we dealt with how our staff were coping and the people in the town were coping and the town itself and how it rebuilds, then we had to look at our own business and how we would rebuild. Um, so the loss of um, stock, um, sheep, uh, the loss of um, crops in particular, which we were relying on for cash flow coming into the business, uh, the loss of infrastructure, sheepyards and fencing and roads, all of that. We then had to, you know, have long, hard conversations again with our bank, but with also with our staff and our contractors as to how we would move on. She says economic diversification is the bet they've made in an effort to spread out the increasing risks. The economic diversification is also part of price risk management. That's one of the reasons we've done it as well. If we've, we're forward contracting, we're managing our price risk too. But the, the more you can manage the external risks for your business, the, the healthier your business will be. And it's been a focus for the business to manage that. I mean, I'm really interested in, in measuring natural capital and, and what, because we live on the land and with the land and, and how we can measure our impact on our, na our natural resources is, is important to the business to make sure we can continue to do that and that our impact is lessened both on our land and on communities as well and that we can also continue to do what we think we do really well which is provide that high quality protein for people's nutrition um, and again for sustainable diets we think it's really important. There are more opportunities out there for this business um, into the future. That may not be me, it may be the next generation, but that we can certainly see more opportunities. And with the 150-year celebration of Gundamain coming up, Caitlin, one of the couple's three children, says she's keen to move the family farm forward. Yeah, what a milestone. It's pretty exciting um, to be part of something that's been going for that long in the same family. We're still 100% family owned. Growing up, the feedlots, I suppose you could say it's as old as I am, Nelly. <laughs> and you did uh, go off for a bit in the middle there to like pursue a different career, didn't you? Yeah, I um, I thought I thought I'd want to do something else, and I, I maybe it put it down to me being a bit too independent. I thought <laughs> I was going off to do my own thing, but I just couldn't. I couldn't scratch the itch. I had to come back. Yeah. Mum and Dad have left us really big shoes to fill. It's going to be. It's going to be a really tricky one to um, make our own mark on this business in the same respect that they have, but Ed and I will give it a good go. Caitlin Herbert speaking to Hannah Joes about her parents who have just won the Farmers of the Year Award for 2023. Congratulations and to everyone who was nominated and awarded as part of the 2023 Farmer of the Year Awards. You can read all about them on the ABC Rural website. 
up to $1,400 per tonne. That is how much mung beans have been trading for this year. And according to the industry, high prices like that are sustainable for years to come as the world looks for more and more Aussie mung beans. And it's growers in the north of Australia who could be in the prime position. Alice Marshall has this report. Mung beans. They're one of the world's smallest vegetables, but this tiny crop is facing a huge global demand, and Australian farmers are well-placed to meet it. Holding roughly the same amount of protein per gram as a T-bone steak, mung beans have been popular in Indian and Asian diets for centuries. Our Asian customers use them mainly into confectionery and dessert markets and soups, where our Indian uh, customers will make them into uh, mung dal, where they'll take the skin off and split them and make mung dal out of them. This is Steve Foran, the accumulation and sales manager for Woods Grain. And that mung dal he was talking about, well, that's what Indian papadums are made out of. And the mung bean soups, they're eaten cold for breakfast. So the Chinese uh, culture believes uh, that mung beans are a cool food. So you eat them in the morning and they'll keep you in a soup and they'll keep you cool for the day. The vast majority of our good quality processing mung beans will end up in China. Uh, we're seeing emerging uh, destinations, Malaysia, Philippines, becoming more and more regular buyers of Australian mung beans as well. We do send them all around the world. The US, UK, Europe are all destinations that we send uh, mung beans in as well. Mr Foran says that Australian grown mung beans are barely scratching the sides of the world's growing demand for the plant protein. Our normal year-on-year production of that 80,000 tonnes will continue to grow. We're looking to move that to 100, over 100,000 tonnes. We've got a, the AMA has a long-term strategic plan of 200,000 tonnes of of year-on-year sustainable production. Our destination countries, our buyers are demanding Australian quality mung beans. They want the large, green, shiny, bigger than four mil mung beans. So part of our breeding process is we're getting bigger mung beans coming through the system. And yeah, it looks very positive for the Australian mung bean industry. And with mung beans currently trading at roughly three times the price of wheat per tonne, farmers are certainly interested in developing the crop especially those in the country's top end. Dr Kylie Wenham studies mung beans at the University of Queensland. She said there was an opportunity to grow Australia's production in the water-rich northern climate, like that of Kununurra's Ord Valley. So mung beans traditionally were always thought to be, you know, quite a, a thrifty dry land crop that, you know, will yield under any circumstance, which we've kind of discovered is actually not true. So they're well-suited to areas like the Ord that has the water so you can irrigate them. Currently, almost all Australian mung beans are grown in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales during summer without the help of irrigation, leaving them vulnerable to hot and dry conditions. But the Ord Valley's reliable and affordable access to water presents mung bean growers with an opportunity to strategically cool the crop to encourage higher yields. The good thing about mung beans is they're kind of similar to humans in the way that we sweat to cool down when they've got water in their system to actually cool down their canopy or their leaves, essentially. Um, it's that evaporative cooling that allows them to tolerate higher temperatures. So timing the irrigation during those critical yield determination periods, like during grain fill or flowering grain fill, providing that they can remain cooler in the canopy than the ambient temperature, there's no reason why they can't yield perfectly well.
Oasis Farm manager Aaron McNamara has been growing mung beans in the Ord Valley for the past seven years. We're, we sort of pivoted towards uh, trying to create a dual cropping or double cropping in the same season type of cropping setup and uh, we're just mung beans have been the best option for that early season legume followed by a, a corn crop after it and at the moment yeah we've we've had we had great success last year on uh, growing that on the flat and uh, we continue to to work with it and um, fine-tune it but even with plenty of access to water it's still difficult to make a profit from mung beans in the north. Freight up here is, is, a, is a big killer um, in terms of uh, financially um, and logistically to get it back to, to Queensland to get processed. But that's something that Steve Foran from Woods Grain hopes will change soon. We'd love to see um, you know, a container trade start through the Darwin, Port of Darwin or something like that where we could start direct export these products directly through the northern Australia. Uh, that's not there at the moment, but I'm sure as we start to build these industries and start to put some other crops and other industries around the container trade, we'll start to see that evolve to a, um, to a really uh, sustainable uh, marketplace. Steve Foran from Woods Grain, ending that report by Alice Marshall. That is it for me on Countrywide this week. Great to have your company. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.